0: All right. Hey, it's Paul Gillette, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Uh, Chris Palomares is on the line with us, and we have got George Bogatuk from Tsunami Soundtracks on board with us today. We're going to talk about Tsunami 2 and a few other things they've got going. George, thank you very much for your time uh, being with us. Hey, welcome and glad to be here. All right. Well, as a uh, long-time Tsunami user and installer programmer, I spent a lot of this afternoon uh, reading through the Tsunami 2 manual. Mm-hmm. And, boy, you guys made uh, just – it's a whole new paradigm for your decoders now with this change. That's my opinion, just reading through the manual. you uh-huh. built a lot of flexibility And capability into your product, so I'm just curious. So you're cruising along with uh, Tsunami, Mm -hmm. probably uh, dominant brand in that market, and then you come out with Econami. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was still living in Phoenix and uh, working part time for an affair with trains and doing some of uh, Bob out there. Yeah, doing some Mm -hmm. of his installs when uh, you know Jerry and the guys get busy and building his railroad for him in the store and started hearing guys just start raving about economy, Mm-hmm. the capabilities and so forth of it. And then we moved here to uh, New Orleans, so all that clutter in my life. And if my wife's listening, honey, I don't mean that, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now you got Tsunami too. So I'm curious, how long did that, from concept to introduction, how long a time
1: period was that? It's kind of hard to say because we've had uh, concepts put together for quite some time, even before we started the actual firmware programming on the uh, original Econami parts. Okay. The idea of the two product lines is to have a two-tier product that work well together, share a CV roster so that as the user, you don't have to relearn an entire new CV roster every time you switch back and forth. Yeah. So, with many of the features that are shared, they'll share the same uh, CVs and settings. Okay. Um, the Econami was actually building up on a lot of the popular features of the original Tsunami and, took and, and, and allowed us to give a little bit more flexibility for the user. One of the biggest things was the FlexMap technology, which allows the user to select any function to be activated with any button on there. Uh, Previous design uh, had limitations. You couldn't put a headlight, for example, on function 12. Okay. But now you can do that, and it's even easier. You just find the CV for the headlight, and you set it to a value of 12, and you're done. And the other thing we wanted to do with the Econami was to condense our part numbers. One of the biggest things in our original Tsunami product line was our part number count. And we had quite a few part numbers at our hobby shops, and, and quite frankly, our manufacturing floor had to make, t- maintain and be apprised of in order to sell it to the customer and uh, keep the hobby shop supplied. And so we wanted to streamline that. And with the Econami, we were able to redesign it to a single part number for steam and diesel and in that decoder, you get multiple selections. So you can still customize the decoder. So it's not, you're, you're not getting a generic sound that is just going to play and you hope it's close to what you're modeling. You can still go in and select some sounds that can be very specific to your model, but also at the price point that we didn't feel was being properly serviced as well because of the generic sounds that were out there in the market. And so with the Economy, it allowed us to redesign the hardware uh, as well to allow. Uh, better servicing of markets that we weren't properly, or we didn't feel like we were doing as, as good as we could. For example, the N-Scale guys always wanting a smaller decoder because the previous generation, the Micro Tsunami, the TSU 750, was still a half inch wide. And so when it came to narrow hood diesels, it was pretty much a no, you know, no deal. But the uh, wide body and, and some steam could still be serviced, but it was, you know, admittedly, it was a little big. But the new hardware design uh, improves a lot of things, includes mo- you know, including processor efficiency, audio amplifier uh, strengths, and the hardware is physically smaller. So now we've got a decoder that is ten and a half millimeters wide, and about twenty-seven long. So it will fit inside a narrow hood diesel, and so this allowed us to expand the product line. And with that, we built that with the, uh, we, we expanded on that and used the Tsunami 2. So we're using a similar processor family and a similar memory chip that is vastly expanded. So we're able to cram a lot more selections onto the Tsunami 2. Uh, for example, by comparison, the Economy Steam, you get four exhaust chuffs, 16 whistles, you get five bells to choose from, a couple compressors, or four compressors. And a few couplers to choose from, whereas on the Tsunami 2, you get 10 exhaust chuffs, 63 whistles, you get 12 bells, you get uh, 10 air compressors, 8 steam dynamos, 3 couplers. And in addition to those choices, you can select from a wood-burning locomotive, you can have a hand-shoveled coal, coal with an auger, and an oil-burning with an atomizer. You can select a power reverse or you can select a manual Johnson bar. And so we've been able to really expand the capabilities of the decoder so that now our steam decoder in the Tsunami product line is able to fit pretty much anything that you want out there that's in the market. Because the both product lines also support the articulated uh, chuff with and without okay. slip, wheel slip, which is the sounds of the two sets of drivers going in and out of sync with each other. And they also both support a three-cylinder. So the big UP9000s will get that offbeat cadence that you're expecting. And the uh, you can also put it in a three-cylinder Shea. And then, of course, the diesel expands upon that as well and gives us a lot more options for the customer. But but also for the, the retailer and our manufacturing floor, we don't have to keep track of as many part numbers.
0: Okay. So when I buy like a, an 1100, so I buy, which is the one-amp uh, Tsunami 2.0. Yes, sir. And I buy – do I buy an EMD version uh, or a GE version or an Alco version? Yes, and then the other option is the
1: Baldwin and others, which I lovingly refer to as the Land of Misfit Toys um, (laughs) because it basically contains – all the sound files that didn't justify a separate part number. Uh, For example, we have four Baldwin uh, recordings. One of them's a new recording that's never been released before. Uh, We have a a, Fairbanks-Morris, the Galloping Goose, and a uh, a Dual Whitcomb that's on there. And none of those separated out by themselves would justify putting a decoder separately. So, yes, so going back to your original question, the EMD decoder actually has nine different diesel prime movers that are in the EMD family. Yeah. That expand the entire production line. So you've got uh, a few different choices for the EMD 567, including a new non-transitioned 567 that was recorded off of a switcher uh, all the way up to a modern 710 G3T2 out of the SD70 ACEs. And it's all on one decoder. So your hobby shop can keep the one decoder and... You can walk in the door and say, I need an EMD, and he'll stop you right there and hand you the EMD decoder.
0: Oh, that's got to simplify the uh, SKU count for stores, but also for someone like uh, Chris. Yes. He's got to, got to build these things, and you don't <laughs> – now, you... okay, here's your EMD. You don't need 20 uh, SKUs in inventory.
2: That's great. Yes, exactly. Well, it, it, the, the funny thing about that is the OEM requirements differ a little bit than, like, over-the-counter – Our OEM versions of the Tsunami 2 for Athern, they'll be every bit as capable and have every bit as as many features as the -the over-the-counter one. But we had to do a little bit of rearranging just for how our product lines are produced. Okay.
1: Things like CV defaults and and, uh, specific lighting, uh, different prime mover selections out of the package are things that he's referring to.
2: Yeah, yeah. For example, like... When we produce an F-unit, we'll never need that F-unit to make SD70ACE sounds, ever. Right, okay. So what we did is we kind of sandboxed that decoder to just produce 567 noises. Okay. So it, it'll produce several different versions of the 567 16-cylinder. I think there's two different recordings on there, so you can do an A-unit and a B-unit together, and they won't phase. okay. Um, but there's also some others on there. There's like an eight cylinder on there. If you want your Jeep to sound really ratty, you, you mm-hmm. can flip over to that prime mover and it'll sound every bit as ratty as you want. So that's okay. kind of how we, we sort of strategized our, our products. Uh, I think they'll be more handy within the usage of, of, our, uh, of our customers.
0: Okay, very good. Uh the beeping you heard is uh Mr. Lincoln joining the uh group. Hello. <laughs>
3: Hi there, James.
0: Better late than never. Well, I, I wasn't entirely
3: sure. I never got an answer back whether it was today or not. So I was
0: like, oh, oh yes. Yes. No, I didn't get one. Ah, I- uh, God tell you <laughs> what, it must be a Massachusetts. It thing. must have been lost in the mail. <laughs> must, must have been. <laughs> Do you going through Hillary's uh, server? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Anyway, yeah, that is just—it's amazing. Now, are you producing the uh, the boards yet? The last time I went to buy one from uh, the store, he's well—they haven't started making the uh, drop-in boards yet. Everything was still hardwired. In what regard to availability? We- well. I guess
1: I, I guess where I'm asking is is we've got the tsunami two in uh, five different board formats. You okay. have the TSU 1100, which is a hardwire version. Yes. Um, you have the TSU 2200, which is which is its larger two amp, uh, six function decoder cousin. Um, that also utilizes the 9-pin JST connector that we've all become familiar with. Uh, For example, Atherin with their ready-to-roll product line and their DCC quick plug. You can just simply plug in the TSU 2200 and plug right into that. Um, Then we have our our TSU 21P NEM, which is our NEM-compliant 21-pin decoder that you can plug into many other manufacturers that are utilizing that technology. And then you've also got the TSU PNP, which is the board replacement, and one of the things about this particular decoder board format is it condenses all of the previous generation's boards into a single circuit board. So all the provisions for the different mounting, such as the BW-1000 for Bowser-Stewart, you had the AT-1000 for Atlas, you had the GN-1000 for the Athern Genesis, you had the KT-1000 for the Cado, you had the IM-1000 for Intermountain, all of those had unique uh, mounting provisions. Well, what our engineers have been able to do is condense all of those mounting provisions onto a single circuit board that can be just dropped in and replace the existing circuit board and then wire it into the, to the model. And that's our P&P. So okay. we talked about condensing part numbers. Uh, for example, the EMD decoder, as I mentioned, with nine different diesel prime movers condensing all of that, we've actually condensed uh, 18 different part numbers from the original Tsunami into the one. And then the last one is is the soon-to-be-released TSU-4400, the TSU 4400, which is our 4-amp, 6-function, uh, uh, 3-watt uh, decoder that they're finishing up the hardware so we can get those into production.
0: Okay, so the PNP series has been produced and should be available at, yes. at the retail level. Yes. Now, I will say that the EMD decoder, of
1: course, because of its uh, popularity, as I kind of alluded to with condensing 18 of the original part numbers, mm-hmm. it's been extremely popular with our dealers and our hobby shops. And of course the, the users. And so we've actually been selling out some of the builds as they're off the product, as they're coming off the production floor. So while I have, s- it's, it's, it's kind of a good problem to have. And the fact that we've got the demand out there for the products, the other side of it is, is we can't get it out there fast enough. And so people are having to wait. And that may have been what you ran into. Yeah. Uh, with that PNP uh, decoder, we've been backordered on them, and the last uh, the last time they built a short run just to get them get some in there, and they were sold out within two weeks again. Wow! And so the good news is, is they're about to hit shel- or the the shelves again, so we'll be able to start shipping them again. Uh, this time they built a significant quantity. Now looking at our history, now that we've got a little bit more, to hopefully not run into that problem until after the first of the year, and okay, doke. be able to plan a little bit better. Because some of it also has to do with part suppliers that we deal with because uh, we have a certain number of components set aside. And when we're exhausting their stock, sometimes their refill time can be anywhere from three to six weeks for them to re- replenish their inventory. Okay. And then, of course, that means we have to wait an additional week for it to arrive at our
2: facility.
0: Okay. That makes Totally understandable. Uh, My mind just went blank. Boy, I knew it was going to be a great question, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's
2: another senior moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about some of the
1: features of it, some of the highlights, or do you have something more specifically with the hardware? I can kind of finish up that that train of thought.
0: Oh, go ahead. Okay, so we've got the uh, 1100 and the 2200. So that's mainly doubles my uh, amperage up to two amps. Mm -hmm. If I had an older locomotive, say like some of the older Walther's Protos that could suck a lot of power. So that's going to give me a little extra margin there. So I don't have to worry about burning out motor drive transistors or whatever. Is is that what that was intended to do?
1: Well, remember, it'll supply up to two amps. So if you have a model that's very efficient and you know, that stall current is pulling three quarters of an amp mm-hmm. and you have the room and you want six lights, you can still use the TSU 2200. Okay. It's just going to say it's going to supply up to two amps. Okay. And uh, so you're not necessarily limited to it, but you do need to do your stall current measurements because um, back when we were doing some new sounds for the original Tsunami, we uh, did some work with the uh, VO, the Baldwin VO sound. Yeah. And at the time we... Uh, went and and got access to, at that time, one of the Stewart VOs, we did a stall current test, and the stall current on that particular model, now you guys remember how well the Stewart models ran, Mm -hmm. was stalling at 16 volts at 1.75 amps, Okay. which is why in the previous generation you never saw the VO-1000 sound in the TSU-750, because there's no sense putting a decoder that's only rated at three-quarters of an amp up against a sure. model that's going to stall at three quarters, uh, you know, one and three quarters. I understand.
0: So understand.
1: Okay. That's where you look at it. And then with the new hardware, we've also been able to improve our efficiency, uh, reduce the heat generation and heat buildup from the decoder hardware. And we've also eliminated the need for a programming track booster. So – Anytime you're putting it on a DCC uh, programming track, previous generation, you needed a booster. Now you no longer need one. But the good news is if you have one, you don't need to remove it either.
0: Okay. Well, now let's talk about this myriad of uh, features that you've added to these decoders. Oh, where do Uh, I start? Dynamic, your digital dynamic exhaust. I think that's a great feature.
1: It's an awesome feature. We've actually had a lot of fun playing with this. The dynamic digital exhaust was actually something that we've had in our product in our steam decoders for years, uh, even dating back to the DSD 150s. There was a very primitive version of the dynamic digital exhaust in that, and then we've had since then. We've had the LC series decoders, the original Tsunamis, and the advancement in the technology with the uh, hard with the uh, uh, processor. And the motor drivers, we actually have been able to expand the dynamic digital exhaust across the entire product range, including our electric decoders. So when you encounter a grade or you're pulling a heavier train, your locomotive will automatically notch up and deepen the exhaust tone so that it's, it'll, it'll sound like it's working as hard as the actual locomotive is. And the good news is there's some self-calibration CVs that are in the decoder so you can fine-tune the decoder to the that particular model's needs, and then you can adjust the sensitivity. So if you've got a light switcher pulling in a yard, you can have it notch up higher and with a higher sensitivity rather than a road unit that's running with three or four units across you know the planes, for example, you can reduce that sensitivity so you don't get quite as much notching up and down. But the the steam decoder also, when when the DDE kicks in, it's as I mentioned, it's more refined, and so when the exhaust chuff backs off, you get a more clear tone of the of the uh, of the rod clank that's in there, and you can actually hear the the valve packing in the in the uh, steam chest as it's working downhill with the the cars pushing it down the hill no kidding wow so we've actually been having a lot of fun with it uh chris came over and we were running trains in my layout and and pulling the switch you know running the light switchers around you can hear it notching up and throttling up and down and uh we were having a great time with it and and during the development of it it was driving me nuts because i had this really cool toy in front of me and i couldn't talk about
2: it (laughs) yeah isn't that isn't that just the worst thing ever
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's extremely difficult especially in our industry
2: yep i i hear you Uh, i had a lot of fun running on your layout by the way george oh well thank you it it was great to kind of like be just so in tune with all these numbers and stuff during the day and like actually experiencing the fruit of all that number crunching yes. and loading up these different cv values and it's just like hey this is really fun
1: there, there is an end goal in mind it, it, yeah and it's fun, <laughs> and fun and enjoyment and it is is the game so
2: right right you are cool
1: so and then and then we've actually got uh with the you know we talk about features with the dynamic digital exhaust let's go into the Uh, braking for a moment. We've got the Tsunami decoder implemented F11 braking, which traditionally has been the sound of the uh, independent or the locomotive brakes. Well, with the Tsunami 2, we've actually introduced the sounds of the automatic brake as well as the independent brake. So you can actually toggle back and forth. So when you're doing your light switching, you can use the independent. And then when you're running your train across the road, uh, you can actually use your train brakes, and it works really cool sound effect in conjunction with the sound car. And their their braking rates are are adjustable, so that you can let your operators uh, determine what that is. And with and that also works in conjunction with the dynamic digital exhaust. So when you do your brake set, you hear the diesel engine throttle down because it knows you're applying the brakes, and so it's it's going to bring you to a stop. And then of course with the diesel decoder, we've actually implemented a third braking rate of functioning uh dynamic break with two stages where you've got uh, dynamic break low where it'll just play the sound effect and, if, and then alter the performance or the the use of the dy- of the uh, prime mover and then you have dynamic braking high, where you can toggle in, and you'll actually slow the train down to about ten miles an hour to keep the train under control as you descend your grade. And you're, you'll hear the fans kick up into high as you as you're descending the grade. So we've really worked how all these features work together to bring you the most realistic effects out there, because we work so hard to make our models as detailed as you know as the real things, while, where they should sound and operate as well, you know, as close as also. Okay. No, you know, I threw I, a lot of
0: stuff out at you. No. So as I looked at the manual and, and some of this, I was perplexed at first, and then it came up time for us to be talking. I didn't get to read further, but like your Harper light, what we would normally traditionally found at F5, F6 on a, the original tsunami, it's down around twenty three twenty four. but it, I'm presuming it's capable of being remapped.
1: Yeah, that's part of the FlexMap technology where you can remap it wherever you want. So the original intent of moving the lights up higher was during a normal operating session, typically you're going to turn on your lights and you're going to leave them on. For example, like your ditch lights, for example, you're going to run around your layout, you're going to blow your horn, you're going to ring your bell, but typically you're not going to be turning on and off your, your auxiliary lights fairly frequently during your normal operation. And so what did was we moved them higher by default, to allow more of the operational stuff to be accessible with the lower functions with the single button press. So what took its place was a, a manual override that, for example, in the diesel decoder, you can press it and it will override the current speed or the current notch that it's in. And mm-hmm. you can notch it up or down to make it run heavy, you know, sound like it's working harder or lighter. And that's across both product lines. So the economy has that and the Tsunami, too. So you can still even override the DDE if you so choose, but it also gives you a little bit more control. So you can start it, you can use it as a manual startup with the F5, trigger it, turn it on, and then you can allow the throttle to use the normal DDE back and forth. On the steam decoder, you can actually use the F5 and F6 to adjust the cutoff. So actually, as if you're adjusting the Johnson bar to operate, so you're basically kind of manually, again, overriding the operation of the DDE, but in the in the steam decoder, you can actually throw it all the way out into full drifting mode. So it will actually, as if you're shutting off the throttle and the steam to drift downhill, and you'll get, like I said, the, the rod clank and the valve packing. But you can manually do that in addition to allowing the DDE processors, pro, I'm sorry, processor to do that in the uh, Tsunami 2 product line. And so it gives a little bit more of the operational stuff, But again, like I said, with the, the Flex map, you can move it anywhere. So the, the good thing is is that when you, uh, if you want to move the lights back to F5 and F6, you just find the CV for the lights, and you set it to 5, you set it to six. But just keep in mind that it doesn't s- replace what was there, so you have to find those and move those either to a higher function or disable them by setting the value to 255.
2: OK. Uh, you got to modify like four CVs to right. To do that. It's
1: yeah, the two lights and then your your uh, RPM plus and minus. So that's your four CVs.
0: Okay, because now you're using index CDs that, or CVs that get you into specific ranges for more finite control. Right, and this was something that was described by the
1: NMRa many years ago, and we had tried to avoid it. Uh, as much as we could but with the many features that we were adding and a lot of the customer feedback was asking for more features or more more customizing abilities and things like that so we eventually had to had to uh uh, cross that threshold but we only use the first two really the first two pages in the econami and the third page is used on the tsunami Two. but there's only two cvs on page three and they have to deal with the wheel clickety clacks
2: okay okay you know, I, I just got to throw in here, George, Paul, the, one of the most un, unsung heroes of the Tsunami 2, in my opinion, is the alternate mixer. And it's probably one of the most obscure things because it's never been in the Tsunami 1 or any other kind of decoder out there. Mm-hmm. But I think the intended use of the alternate mixer is you press a button, it halves the volume. It makes it half as loud as it was for like running a train at home. Right. So it's like a, it's
0: like a fader is what you're saying.
1: No, you can actually go in and fully customize each individual volumes to different levels. Okay. So when, like he kind of alluded to, if you have a home setting and a club setting or a display, let's say you're taking it to a train show, you can have two different sets of volumes in the uh, Tsunami 2. And It's defaulted off of the function mapping, but you can assign it to any button where you would just activate a function and then suddenly all of
2: your volumes will change to the alternate settings. Great. Yeah, and one of the things that I found out, you know, I I heard Mike Conflone say that he takes the dynamic break and he mutes it. And then what happens? The prime mover drops to idle whenever you hit F4. Mm -hmm. By using the alternate mixer, you you... You put all your, your default mixer settings onto the alternate mixer. So everything's the same. With the exception of the dynamic break, you mute that. So what happens is you, you turn on the alternate mute mixer, and then you hit F4. And now on the Tsunami 2, you have an idle feature. You have a coast feature. It drops the prime mover down. You're okay. still moving, and you're in idle. So goes. you're kind of coasting into your, into your stop. Yeah. You're coasting into your stop. You're going downhill. This happens a lot on the SP. You're just going downhill and you're going downhill for a long way, you know? So having the prime mover and idle is right where you want it to be. So, well, and the, you know, just to kind of add to that
1: too. And, and, you know, that's one way to do it. The, the DDE processor also, if you set the parameters, right, we would during, some of the testing phases, we were starting trains downgrade, releasing the brakes and th- putting the throttle up, and it was never notching up. So, there's, there's you know, you can fine tune the, the DDE processor, but this is a, a hard way to do it to guarantee it'll do it every time. Okay.
0: Another question now, because I, I believe all of the new Tsunami 2s have, is it a plug in feature for the uh... current keeper?
1: Yeah, current the keeper. Current keeper. Um, all of the, the hardware has been designed with provisions for the current keeper. So the 2200, the PNP, the, uh, and the 4400 have a two-pin connector that you just plug in the current keeper. The TSU 1100 has two wires uh, you tie into the blue common, and then there's a green and yellow uh, striped wire that would then be your ground. And then the, uh, the TSU 21 PNEM has two solder pads that you would solder to uh, in the connector head that that would allow quick and easy uh, addition to it.
0: Okay. That's great. That is great. That's always before on the, uh, when you came out with them on the first generation tsunamis that intimidated the heck out of me where I had to go in and do some very skillful soldering to make the connections. Right. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so when I read that, I went, Oh good. Life just got simpler. It did, and and the
1: original the original decoder was built without even thinking about additional capacitors and what we supplied with it. Yeah, because the original idea was that the the capacitors would help get you past the momentary losses of power. Because with the higher powered processor, the audio amplifier, and the motor drivers all drawing current, it, the decoders the themselves were a little more susceptible to power losses, and so the the onboard capacitors were designed to help get you through that, but the idea grew to where now you can add more capacitance to it and run further. So things like frogs may not necessarily need to be powered anymore. And that's where, you know, we've been able to add the provision into it. The, you know, just to kind of do an efficiency side by side, personal experience, I had put a current keeper on a TSU, uh, I think it was a GN 1000 or something, and we would pick it up off the track and just alone, it would probably run about 15 seconds because it was drawing the current well with the new hardware a tsunami two. i was installing it in a model and i was doing some test running downstairs on the layout so i wanted to go up and make a change and put it back to you know with the installation or something so anyway i took it off the layout walked through the house went upstairs went to my workbench sat it down and finally the power died so it just sips current from those current keepers so i've timed it at about 30 to 40 seconds wow
0: because you know I even on this small railroad in this house run into, if I have a dirty piece of track or like you say, going over a frog on a shorter wheelbase and it, and it stutters, okay, then I've got all these key clicks I've got to do to turn the lights off, turn them back on, F5 back on, back off. That should eliminate all that, right? Yes. Because it, there won't be an interruption to the light circuit. Okay, great. You know, and, it's and, it's and, funny when
3: with... God help you if you have too many dead ends on your railroad and you run your trains like right off. And
4: they, <laughs> well... and, and they keep going.
1: There is that, but the good thing is, is there also there is also a CV in there called DCC packet timeout that you can determine that if you do not re- if your decoder doesn't receive a valid DCC packet after X number of seconds, it will automatically go into shut off mode
0: and come to a stop. So you can kind of control that too. Well, Jim, what I did at the end of all my sightings, if they're close to the end of the module, I just put these big rubber bands there, and I hide them with uh, super trees. That works? <laughs> yes, it does.
1: The best, the best end of track I've ever seen in all my travels is the one layout I visited had a track that kind of veered off to the side and ended over the edge. And a way to keep him from running cars over the edge was he had a nail nailed <laughs> into the track. But he disguised <laughs> the nail. He disguised the nail by putting a figure over it and painting him in a Superman costume.
4: <laughs> that's great. I like that.
1: So the Man of Steel would stop your train from running over the edge.
0: <laughs> Golly, that's good.
2: My well, you know railroad. the funny. The funny thing about Maury Roading is we think that our our pickup systems are you know, it's a mechanical thing to to keep the, the, the pickups perfect all the time and have the most, you know, have wipers or whatever to, you know, eliminate the need for um, like current keepers and stuff like that. But it's just by Murphy's law, <laughs> there's going to be something out there on the rails. that's going to obstruct your pickup of, you know, DCC packets and electricity. So well, the, I, the current I keeper don't... is sort of like the Murphy's law filter. You know, <laughs> I don't
3: I don't really think I mean the amount of uh, care that is required to wire your railroad and keep it clean enough so that you don't need curtain keepers is so great that you know even if you're relatively careful and put feed feeders most places like you said Chris there's you're always going to miss something or you're not going to clean it well enough and then you know like the old days where you'd run, and you thought you put feeders everywhere. When you didn't have sound, your trains ran fine. Mm-hmm. And then you'd hit you your perfect track where the train runs fine. And you come and the, the engine would turn off and then restart. And it's like, ugh. So you had to get even way more anal about your your um, ability to put in feeders and and stuff like that. So I, I think in nowadays, just for the sake of sanity... Uh, current keepers are the way to go. It's definitely a safety net. Well, no, it's a lazy net, more than anything else. It's a lazy net. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cuz you're always gonna forget that 1 feeder on the stupid piece of track and it's in the back, yeah. but all the trains have to go over it and you thought you put it in but you didn't. It's always you know, gonna
2: happen. You know, Jim, and then there's some railroads where it doesn't matter how much effort you put in there's going to be something somewhere and a modular layout is a perfect example of that because mm-hmm. it's not only your efforts, it's a bunch of other people's as well. Yep. And uh, their level of uh, attention to detail is going to be a little bit different than other persons. So,
3: And then, and then
2: you have now this is different. I mean, this is a different uh,
3: example, but I have a friend of mine who uh, shoots uh, um, muzzle loaders and, he would he goes and does competitions and stuff he says all these people he says all you know all the people i shoot with they're meticulous about cleaning their guns every day i never clean mine i leave it and i leave it gets dirty it doesn't and i win <laughs> he wins and he never cleans the stupid thing drives people <laughs> mad like mike mike Contalone, you know he does apparently mike rose tells stories about he'll do stuff that everybody would be like you can't do that. And it works for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hate it when it works for him. <laughs> I went I went to his railroad and his railroad is beautiful, but there are there are places where the track is like hanging off the side of the roadbed. And <laughs> and I'm like, How does that work? I d I, I can't believe it. And then when he covers it up the train you know, the trains run fine. It, you know, they look beautiful. You know, up until you know, up until the point where he covers it up and makes it look beautiful, it doesn't. And you're like, God that shouldn't work. <laughs>
2: it's the parts of the layout that aren't on the calendar, you know. <laughs> right.
3: I, I had a guy. I lent him my I lent him my fast tracks jigs, and he had never he never watched the the uh, instructions. And I went. He says oh, I made a bunch of switches come over my house, and I came over his house, and the the switch points were blunt. And when I say that, he, they weren't like really sharp, like they're supposed to be. And I was like, "These aren't right. These shouldn't work." And the trains ran just fine. I looked at him and I said, "Did you even read the instructions? Did you look at the videos?" He's like, "No, I'm a mechanic. I don't need to do that. These trains should not run on this track. <laughs> it shouldn't work." So it's like he had
0: stub switches, kind of. Yeah,
3: because he didn't, you know, he didn't file it down enough. So, you know, since then he watched the videos and he did it right, so that you know it just foolproofs the operation but uh yeah there are some people like that and then there's everybody else
0: well see there would have been a perfect christmas gift you could have volunteered to go over and file his points for him <laughs> um
3: no the switches The no the, the where where the switches were they would have had to been pulled out to do that you, you would have to disassemble the switches to i mean you have to understand how fast track stuff works but you'd have to disassemble the switch to actually file the point down, it wasn't. You know, I mean, yes, it's theoretically possible, but no, I wasn't doing that. Particularly when he didn't—he didn't watch the videos. Had he watched the video, he would have known. But because he's a mechanic, he doesn't need to do that.
2: I don't need to—I don't need to read instructions. I'm a mechanic. And he too stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Oh, he's—he's he's
3: an excellent mechanic. I will tell him that. I will give him that. But yeah, now he's—he. He makes great track, but the first few times, it worked, but didn't.
0: Work. Didn't. Nobody. No one knew why it worked. No, no one knew why it worked, but it worked. All right. Oh, George, I know what I was going to ask you. I see now on Tsunami Two, I can also play around with CV five and six, yes, mid range and uh, top end. Okay. Yes,
1: the economy and the Tsunami Two both have CV five and six active now.
0: Okay, good. That's when I had access to a, a big railroad, I never worried about it, but here the trains on a smaller railroad they mentally always seem like they're going faster, so I really uh tweaked five and six on that to uh keep the uh Superman impression down but, yeah, I like that excellent.
1: Well, with the, new, with the new hardware and the new firmware, we were able to refine our motor control. So we've got a lot better motor control than what we had in the previous generation. Um, we also have a feature built in, uh, function 14, which is called switching mode, which will basically take your commanded speed step and cut it into one half. So if you're doing switching, you can enable that F 14, and the decoder will then send your speed step 10. It will interpret that as speed step 5. Well, if you do the math, you can actually be moving at a commanded speed step one, enable function 14, and you can be moving smoothly at a speed step one half. And that's of 128. Wow. So we've had a lot of good reviews over that. And uh, with momentum, you
0: can really get a nice smooth start every time now. Okay, because that used to be one of the things that would just drive me crazy regardless is, you know, you hit speed step one and all of a sudden you're doing four miles per hour scale speed. I, I do like it when, you know, the locomotives just start out very, very smooth and mm-hmm. go up. So that's, that's another great improvement then. I like that.
1: Yeah, so using this in conjunction with your brakes, you can hold the, the locomotive still, throttle your oh. knob up. You'll hear the prime mover rev up. You can release the brakes. You'll, you'll slowly start to move, and then you disable F14, and then you can start slowly moving to pull out your coupler slack. And then once you get that going, then you can throttle up and increase your throttle a little, little further to get going up to track speed. Okay.
0: Now, you've got uh, – you said clickety-clack. and so, Do you have uh, – Coupler slack coming in and out?
1: Not really. There's the sound okay. of the coupler. You can couple the locomotive in and out. Um, some of the other new f- uh, sound effects we've added. Um, Fireman Fred has a few new th- uh, tasks including ash dump. You can hear the you hear them shaking the grates um, and some other things like that. We've on the diesel side. We have Fireman Ed, who has several tasks including wrenches and, and some of the standards. But you've also got the air conditioner will run in the background. You can have the pneumatic lubricators running in the background. And yes, you can actually set the the probability for the sound of the pneumatic toilet flush. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just one of those sounds that'll run in the background and then there's some, and so there's some, there's some sounds that are also in the electric as well that kind of give you some of that relay clicks and things, you know, to kind of really bring the locomotive to life as it's sitting there or during when it's running you, like I said, the probability and the way that all works together. Um, during my trip here, I've had, ai had one uh, gentleman ask me yesterday about uh, some of the functions. Uh, for example, the radiator fans are no longer on F9 they're not even in the function list. And the reason we did that was because the engineer himself doesn't turn on and off the radiator fans. They're based on operation of the locomotive. Sure. Uh, When the locomotive starts getting, the temperature starts getting warm, the fans will kick on and vice versa. Um, Well, the other one he was asking about specific, you know, was the compressor where the compressor would cycle on and off. And, and I wanted to kind of point out that our compressor is running on a smart cycle as what well. i mean the radiator fans do too but you can trigger the the compressor if you really, if you so choose uh, there's two ways to do it you can use the brakes more frequently so if you hit the brakes three separate times you've now depleted the reservoir which will then trigger the the governor to kick on the compressor and refill the reservoir the other mode is we've kind of talked briefly about with the train brake mode when you activate F12 by default the, tra- the locomotive goes into what's called train brake mode, and you hear on the steam engine, you'll hear the compressor start cycling as it's charging the train line. Um, on the diesel engine, you'll actually hear the diesel engine notch up to notch two, and the, tra- and the compressor will cycle so it more quickly charges the train line. So it's a more interactive, and mm-hmm. it's based on how you're using the locomotive as opposed to just a simple sound effect that
3: runs in the background. I was gonna say that's that's really cool, but I was gonna say if you're really gonna do the Fireman Fred thing properly, Mm -hmm. uh, you'd have to have when you stop too quickly, you'd Uh have to you'd have to have the sound of Fireman Fred screaming when he hits the firewall. (laughs) Uh, Well, there uh, is, (laughs) and and, and then and then the pause of you've just killed Fireman Fred.
1: (laughs) Well, we do have the sound of the air dump when the and locomotive engineers throw it into emergency. So you do hear that sound. That's and not as fun. It's not as fun. It, <laughs> maybe, if you, maybe if you put your finger slightly in the ear, you, it can almost be the sound of fireman Fred's head hitting the, the back <laughs> yeah. head. Then. Yeah, there you go.
3: <laughs>
2: the old thump a dump. There you go. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, don't dump until you thump. <laughs>
1: No. So basically, you know, we've we've kind of gone through and thought a lot of how all of this stuff works together, and and intelligently wrote, wrote the firmware so that you get the most realistic experience based on the way everything is interactive.
0: Okay, and on the GE's, you have the, I believe it's on the GE's. You've got the head end power setting. It's actually on all of the decoders, okay. uh, all
1: the diesel decoders, and it's and it's different by. Uh, prime movers. So I'm actually glad you mentioned it. It's one of the because there's so many features I tend to forget about some things. Um, but the HEP mode is actually unique to different prime movers. And so uh, the F40PH, which uh, was an EMD product, uh, were nicknamed the little screamers because they were always in notch eight when they were sitting at the platforms uh, because they were providing HEP. Um, the GEP42s and the AMD103s would typically run at about notch six. Um, to maintain your head, your head end power. Now, a couple of things to note. One is, uh, that the DDE processor still works, even if you're in HEP mode. So as you're pulling away from the depot, you're going to hear that, that prime mover sound intensify even in HEP mode, because now you're drawing from the traction motors as well. Um, And in the case of the GE, for example, if you need to throttle up beyond six, it will notch up to six and come down to six, but it'll never go below six when you're in HEP mode. Um, The other side of that um, is that when you're running a consist of locomotives, let's say, for example, if you were running three F40 pHs, um, it's good to note that only one of those were traditionally in HEP mode. And it's usually the farthest one away from the engineers. Um, And so when you build your consist, it the uh if you're using advanced consisting you can use your trailing unit and turn on f16 and then grab your consist address and run and that one unit will always be in hep mode continuing around the layout until you get done uh at the end of the locomotive run where you disconnect and then you just dis- you turn off your uh, uh head end power mode um So that's a really cool and also a more realistic effect. And then kind of along those lines, we also have the sound of a steam generator on the decoders. So if you're running early steam heat uh, on your passenger coaches, you can have the proper sounds to go along with it, too.
0: All right. And I, I was reading about that. And what sound does that make? Well, basically, kind of as you would expect,
1: boiling water steaming away. Okay. So it's not a... A real—it's not a real conspicuous sound effect. It is kind of in the background, but it is there. And uh, we were able to record, I believe, an actual uh, uh, steam generator. But I couldn't tell you which one it was because I wasn't on that recording trip.
0: Okay. All right. I just thought that was neat. You guys have thought of everything. There isn't much. I mean, there there
1: are some things, of course, that we would you know think about. But as of, you know, what we did is we tried to release it as much as, you know, as much with the uh, uh, realistic operation as we can to make sure that the end user gets the experience that they're looking for and basically has fun doing it.
0: Now, as I went through the manual again, because I haven't, you know, bought a Tsunami 2 yet. What? Uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. no. (laughs) When I went to the, the big superstore and ordered one, I got an email back said they haven't made that yet. Oh, right. Okay. And you explained about the demand on it. So mm-hmm. one of the things that, as I recall, and before even Tsunami, when I had uh, QSIs, you know, using index CVs and mm-hmm. this and that, and then... Do you think or have you considered one of the things that simplifies for instance ESU is they have programming software that is kind of like their version of JMRI that's my understanding which does a lot of the where you've got multiple CVs affecting a headlight does it dim what's the LED, you know the LED compensation mm-hmm. uh Blink rate if it's a gyro light, and so forth. Have you guys noodled around? Maybe you come up with a software package that would simplify this? Or is it compatible with JMRI?
1: It's compatible with JMRI, and the, the definitions are already there. Um, okay. We actually sent the definitions to them early on so they could have it ready when we launched the product and had it in store so that the end user could quickly find it on the JMRI. Okay. But the other side of this is we tried to make the CV programming as easy as possible. I mean, I know you mentioned the, the index CVs, but that's why we only use one index, where uh, CV32 is the only one that changes when, you, when you're doing your indexing on, on the CVs. But the headlight, for example, has several things that, that one CV does. Okay. One of them is select the, the hyperlight effect. Then you can determine whether that lighting effect is active When your grade crossing is enabled, or when you blow the horn, um, then you can determine uh, the uh, phase A or phase B. So in the case of, say, ditch lights, when they flash out of sync, that's a phase A and phase B example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you also have LED compensation, which alters the way that the the lighting signal is sent so that the LED appears more lifelike as if it were an incandescent bulb, because of course, they have different illuminating characteristics. And so it's all in one CV. And in our user's guide, we actually go through step by step to help you program it. And the first part is pick your hyperlight one through twenty five. Then, when you want, then you enable crossing logic, then phase A, and then you turn on the LED and you add either 3264 or 128 to the value and you program it in CB49 and you're more or less done. For okay. Light. Um, so, we try to make it as easy as possible. That's where the flex mapping comes in, really, you know, kind of to kind of uh, highlight that because, again, it's simplicity. The previous generation and following the nmra recommended practice for function mapping was cv 33 through 46 where the cv was assigned to the function button and each bit was assigned to an effect and your addition of the bits would then tell the decoder which things would happen when your function zero and forward was turned on and when we were looking at expanding to 28 functions and we've got all these different other sound effects and lighting effects and things like that, we started building a matrix to expand that. And it became very, ty- very cumbersome and, and especially trying to teach it. We were looking at it going, well, you have to set this bit and this CV and this bit and this CV, but you ignore this CV and this CV, but you set this bit. And it became very, uh, uh, ty- uh difficult to explain and so what we did was we flipped the chart where the cv is now assigned to the effect and the value is the function and that's one of the ways we made it easier so now our headlight can be assigned by one cv as opposed to i think the original design was six cvs and so those are ways we that we've taken our time and and really analyzed the user and and What they cut, what the user wants out of the product, and how do we best serve that need without making it overly complicated? And we feel we've done a pretty good job of it. I mean, there's some things that are, you know, there may be a better mousetrap out there, a better way to do it, but as far as, you know, traditional and the current structure that we're working with in DCC, those are the ways that that
0: they were best fit with the firm, with the software. Okay. No, I think uh, as much capability as you guys have designed into this decoder. Uh, Yeah, all these little... Because I noticed when you were talking about it, the function became the value in the CV to reassign it. Uh, So yeah, you have put a lot of thought into making it easily mastered by someone. So when I get my first one, I will not use JMRI. I will do it the hard way. That's just... Or the long way, I should say, because... That's just how I learn. Sure. Uh, the good news is, is that our users' guide are written by the marketing
1: department, so they're they're interpreted from engineer speak into <laughs> terms, so to speak, okay. and in written in such a way that anybody can grab a manual and, provided, of course, they understand how to use their DCC system, will be able to customize their decoder to their heart's content. Now the safety net to that is we're a phone call or an email away. Uh, we do have people that are there, you know, all, all during the week during normal business hours that are specifically dedicated to uh, answering tech support calls and questions to help you answer and find that, you know, for example, if something doesn't make sense, we'll try different ways of explaining it to till you have that aha moment and can go and fix it, you know, and, and do it the way you want it to. Um, you know, so the good news is, is that you always have that but the manuals that you know they are fairly well written and fairly easy to follow so uh, shouldn't have any difficulties
0: okay well i'll get a hold of mr lynch then and get a couple of these coming
2: my way you know i gotta say the jmri profiles i was able to download and put on my early i'd say my 3.2 version of jmri so the Tsunami 2 profiles are backwards compatible with early versions of JMRI.
0: Well, can't you just go to JMRI and just download a new version?
2: No, not if you're on an earlier version of like Mac OS or Windows or something like that. Oh, okay. There's a lot of hobby computers that aren't, you know, okay. most of Unders-
0: today, understand, so. understand. Okay, but it's backwards compatible, so that's fine. Yep. Okay. I think I used my JMRI once and I said, nope, I'm going to learn this the hard way, which is what one of the guys at uh, Litchfield said, he said, why don't you learn it before you worry about JMRI? So it
1: definitely does help. And I mean, I think the JMRI is a fantastic tool out there and it's given a lot of power to the users to... there's some misnomers out there where people are scared to program because they think they're going to break it. And <laughs> the good news is, is that, you know, you can program any CV to any value. You can't break it. Um, if you could, we didn't do our job very well. But the JMRI platform gives people the, the courage to go out and try stuff with the check boxes and slider bars. Yeah. And it's a great tool. And with that, I do always put this little caveat and say, if you run into something that's not behaving the way you expect it to, stop and grab our manual and read how we tell you to do it, and then try it that way and use the direct CV programming. And that way you can see how we tell you. And if the the uh, different, there may be some, excuse me, some slight differences with uh, how they've interpreted the information we gave them and how it programs the CVs through the, the, the software. Um, I will say that those are few and far between. I have, I have not run into many of those if any at all personally. Um, But there are a couple of those little things out there that, that can potentially throw people for a loop. And so uh, what, as, as backup tech support at soundtracks, I do get calls on that where I say, where people will say, well, I've used my JMRI and it's doing this. And I say, okay, stop. That's, let's go back and look at the user's guide and we'll program that CV directly. And okay. they do it and it works the way they want it to. And then they can read the CV values into JMRI to see what, according to the, the JMRI software they've selected so that they can use that and save it as a profile and then learn from that to see how they've interpreted the, the information.
0: And one of the other points I noticed when I went through your manual your CV-8, uh, you know, the traditional CV-8 to, eight to reset everything, you now give us flexibility to only reset certain segments of the CVs right? with different values. Correct. With all those CVs in there,
1: somebody may just want to go in and reset the function mapping, yeah. and so you can do that, and uh, they may just want to set volume levels, so we've given them the provisions to do that, and because as you know with all these features and all these different ways to customize the decoder somebody could sit there and spend hours playing and setting up decoders and then when they've run into one thing and suddenly they have to reset and start all over and i don't know about you guys but i know i'm wonderful at taking notes and every every dot every (laughs) i and cross every when i'm doing stuff uh so as you've picked up on the sarcasm there um a lot of people can realize, what do you mean? I got to reset. Well, I've got all these CVs set and it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. But so this was one thing that, that we felt helped would help with uh setting thing, you know, resetting and giving people a fresh start to, to find what may have been inadvertently programmed.
0: Yes. Excellent uh, approach to that. So, so people look it up in the manual. It just means that, CV eight may not be eight. It may be CV eight at nine, CV eight at ten. So look at it. It's a, And it will save
1: we- you a lot of keystrokes. And one thing to remember is to complete the reset process, you have to cycle power and that's take power away from the decoder for a few seconds and then reapply power. And whether that's turning the track power off or just tipping the locomotive over on the track so that it breaks contact with one rail, uh, basically you're rebooting the decoder and it knows internally what to do. And then it'll sit quiet for a couple of seconds and then you're going to see that light flash 16 times and that's your visual indicator to let you know the reset has taken place so that that way if you don't see that reset you know you may not have and so you know to go back in and make sure that cv8 is actually set to 8 nine, ten, or 11 i think it is
0: okay now the headlight flash confirmation that let me ask you uh, before certain Problems would result in the headlight flashing X mm-hmm. amount of times as a code. Mm-hmm. Is that still present? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, we and, use it as a diagnostic tool quite, fr- you know, quite okay. uh, uh, frequently because we'll have people call up and say, "Well, I'm getting 11 flashes." Uh, Of my light, what does that mean? It's like, okay, well, that means your decoder is detecting track power. So that may mean internally in the model, there may not be a proper insulation of the motor circuit from the track pickups. Okay, And so that means they need to go in and physically make some change because the decoder's flashing the error code for a reason, and it gives you the indication. There are also some error codes that require a sent back to, uh, to Durango for repair because there may be a component failure or something on there. And those are all listed, again, in the back of the user's guide, you know, explicitly so that
0: you can go through and read them and see what it means. Okay, then that brings up the logical question. Sometimes you're not facing the headlight and it it comes into view and it's already been blinking. Is there any way to replicate that to read the code? So that uh, you it, know what to do? It'll usually flash all the lights, headlight and backup light,
1: but it'll okay. also if it if it's if it's let's say for example if the locomotive stopped and flashed, it'll flash let's say eleven times, pause and then start over again. So if you watch it closely, you'll see it pause for a second and then start to flash the light again. So you always have that reset where you can start counting again because yeah you may not have you know like say for example in the case of an f unit where there isn't a backup light um you may not be there so if it gives you a chance to walk around and see what
0: the error code is okay i never realized that okay thank you that's excellent excellent wow just so much information chris when are you going to adopt these on your locomotives
2: We've already are. Which ones are coming out with the two? The, the Jeep 7s and 9s are coming this month.
0: Really? No kidding? Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah, December is going to start introducing uh, Tsunami 2s. The first ones uh, in our production line are... The Jeep Sevens and Nines, are some Rio Grande, Erie, Western Maryland, um, a few others, and those those are coming first. Okay, any Santa Fe Topeka cabs? No, how about a Santa Fe uh, GP7B? Wow! And a GP7. Uh, the GP7Us are coming later on. Okay, say the closer to summer.
0: Okay. All right, well, I could see maybe adopting one or two of those, giving them a good home.
2: Yeah, I think uh has your name written <laughs> on it. <laughs> I second that. Yeah, yes. Uh,
0: well, I mean, I've often wondered because Durango is such a beautiful town. When you drive through on the highway, like if you're going over to Alamosa or, or going down to the Four Corners area, it's such a... Beautiful town. Even the Home Depot there is, is fits right into
1: the mountain decor real well. Yes, that's one of the great things about the small town, and uh, you know, with a big tourist you know railroad like the Durango and Silverton right there, we get quite a few visitors coming through every year. Because uh, we we do manufacture all of our electronics right there in house, and that gives us the ability to you know, usually respond quickly to, to to market changes. And also we're able to uh, have a much better quality control because our technicians are there uh, testing the circuit boards, not just with the electronics and the machines that we have, but they'll hand test every decoder into a simulated locomotive to verify proper operation so that we, when we package it, think of it as the Michelin man hugging his tire as he <laughs> sent it off in the production world. Um, we kind of look at it that way because each one gets its own attention because we hand test every one of them before we package, and that goes for Chris's decoders as well that we're doing for Athern. Um, and others that we actually do and it is a bottleneck it does slow the process down a little bit but we can know that we're sending off good quality equipment as opposed to just throwing them in a box and shipping them off because we could do that too and save time how cold is it there today uh well actually i'm in st louis you're in st I, I, louis but how I'm cold st. is louis. it back in Durango? um i haven't checked it right now but i think our high was supposed to be somewhere in the 30s Oh, good grief! Uh, I think I saw something uh, yesterday from a friend of mine back home. Said it was in the, uh, I think somewhere around ten degrees in the mornings. What is it in St. Louis today? I don't know. What is it in St. Louis here today? What's it supposed? I haven't even looked. I've been driving all morning, so I got here. Okay. Been here for about thirty minutes, and they're saying it's about forty degrees. So that's well, to take off time to take off the jacket out here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Forty degrees. That's like summer compared to here. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you
0: a little chillier, uh, Chris?
2: Uh, it says one nine on the temperature. right now. <laughs> oh, wow. I just give you guys a heads up. I'm I'm in the truck right now. I'm preparing to head on over to St. Louis and I should probably be there after the podcast. So, okay. All so right. We're well, getting a blow by blow on the road with Chris here in about, you know, two seconds.
1: Gotcha. Well, I also started probably ought to think about uh, round wrapping up. If you don't mind, I've actually doing a clinic at Mark Twain hobbies tonight Oh, out wow. in St. For Charles. Those up in St. Charles. So I'll be visiting those folks over there and doing something. So in the short term, Ken's over here. He wants to say hi to everybody. So hang on just a second.
0: Okie doke. Hey, gentlemen. Mr.
1: Patterson.
2: How hey, are Ken you? Ken P? Hey, I, I got to get on here and talk about I something can. here, this, this Northern, hey, what's up? This Northern Pacific Challenger that uh, Chris
0: Palomares sent me to photograph, uh, if you guys haven't seen the photograph, you need to check it out on the Atheron Facebook page. This has got to be one of the most magnificent snow, I mean, Chris said put icicles on it, so I mean, this thing is just, there's, it's, it's wow, it's a it's, great shot. It's the one going across the trestle, right? Yes, it's my new screensaver, and I just cannot believe the oh, magic. beautiful. When Chris put the smoke on it, oh, it, yeah. just, that, it just came to life. And so it'll be in February, show how we created the picture. But uh, I'm just so excited about it that I had to tell you guys, check it out. Atherin did it again. <laughs> well, you know, Chris, there's a product opportunity. You could partner up with George and take a, one of those cigarette vape units. Yeah. And we'll put a little water bladder in there. And we'll blow steam vapor
2: out. Well, you know, it, it would be appropriate to blow steam vapor out of a steam locomotive, wouldn't it?
0: Shoot, yes, we'll run it down through the. God, that could be an optional extra. That's a, Well, that's all I wanted to say, guys. Thanks for letting me on, and I'll give George back to you. All right, all Thank right, you, Ken. All right. Well, we used to live in St. Charles, and uh, the first hobby shop I ever went to out there was Mark Dwayne's. Uh, that's cool. That I'm excited. Cool.
1: I've never been to the, his store before. I've never been in the St. Louis area other than passing through the airport. So I'm excited to go see the store and, and meet the folks over there. So,
0: Well, St. Charles is actually where Lewis and Clark left from when they did the Northwest ex- exploration. It's a beautiful little town. I loved it when we were there. All right. Well, go do your thing. I appreciate your time. Hey, yeah, glad to do for it for on. you guys. And, and I'll talk with Chris when he
1: gets here. We'll try to set this up. Maybe we can do this a little more frequently then and maybe do like a technical corner or something like that every so often for you guys.
2: That sounds yeah. like a winner. Okay, yeah. Chris. Yeah, as, as Paul goes through uh, installing his new Tsunami 2, I'm sure he'll <laughs> have you. some questions that he'll want to run by you on the air. That's true. Oh, excellent idea. Feel free to call me anytime. I'm usually at the office
1: right now. I'm actually traveling. I've been traveling since uh, last weekend. Okay. We did the uh, Oklahoma City train show, and I've driven my way across to St. Louis at various stops doing clinics for the hobby stores in each of the areas. So uh, I should be home next week, and I don't foresee myself going anywhere before the end of the year. So okay, may go to your. You sh- it should be on the way to the store if it's not already there. Pick one up and uh, let me know how you think, uh, what you think about it. And uh, I can also help you unlock some tips and secrets to help maximize your enjoyment of it.
0: All right. Hey, Chris, drive carefully. None of this photographing trains while you're driving. Oh, come (laughs) on,
2: man. Hey, uh, how about we call that segment On the Horn with George? On the Horn with George. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm game.
3: Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the model railroad hobbyist podcast
0: doing something unique this time our guest is in great britain a uh, quite prolific youtube modeler both model railroads dioramas all forms of it her name is kathy Millett. kathy i'm so glad to uh, talk to you
5: it's great to be here paul thank you for having me
0: you're welcome i have discovered you when I was uh, going through some YouTube videos looking for ways to enhance trees and stuff. And I stumbled on your uh, videos. I started watching them. Uh, you've got, it looks like, about 89, 90 uh, videos out there. So I thought, I think we need to see if this young lady can, uh, can talk to us here. So you've been on YouTube since, uh, I think, since 2010.
5: Yeah, but I've only been putting up a video on modeling every week since last July, so. One a week? I do one a week, yes.
0: Wow, so you're in Great Britain, what city do you live in?
5: I live just south of Birmingham, so I live in a lovely area, It's, it's just north of Warwickshire, so it's equal distance to Stratford with Shakespeare, Warwick with Warwick Castle and all the medieval stuff, and Birmingham, which is a big city, Loads going on there, really great place.
0: Okay, and if I want to put this within a uh, a mental context of how far away are you from London?
5: A hundred and something miles. We're kind of middle of the country, middle of the middle in the middle.
0: Okay, that's cool. My wife is, and daughters have been to London, but I didn't make the cut on that trip, so <laughs> I have not been there. It's amazing. What's your weather like today? Gray. Grey. Okay. It's
5: Grey. It's not. It's getting a bit colder, but nothing like you might get over there. If we see any snow this winter, it'll be a bit of a surprise.
0: Okay. Yes, I'm in New Orleans, and so New Orleans is just a uh, a swamp, so we don't we don't see snow down here.
5: Uh, I'm coming to New Orleans next summer, hopefully. So perhaps we'll have to arrange. It up. Yeah.
0: Well, you will have to uh, let me know, and we'll take you to some local eateries. That
5: would be brilliant.
0: I mean, New Orleans is all about the food, I must say, they have some inventive cooking down here. Now, last weekend you told me you were at the uh, NMRA. Um, it
5: was the British Region Annual Convention,
0: okay. so yeah. If I wanted to create a, a picture which contrasts, uh, say, American model railroading with that over in specifically great brit what were some of the things i would notice now, i know your prototype railroad equipment is uh visually different from what we have here in the states
5: well your sailor is not unusual to perhaps what you might see over here nowadays it's not dissimilar to a pendolino but um the big difference you'll see in real size trains is we don't have the freight you do the majority okay. of railways that you see are passenger So I regularly catch the train to work every day. If I'm going long distance, I'll catch the train. And on my line, I can stand there. And in the space of 10 minutes, there'll be three or four passenger trains going in both directions. It'd be rare to see a freight train. There's a container train in the morning and maybe something else go through, but it is rare. And they often go overnight rather than in the day.
0: Okay, and this is regular standard gauge above ground. It's not like a tube or a subway system.
5: No. Really, the main place with um, an underground is London, and it's worth going to and visiting if you're in the UK, because it is very different um, to everything else that you'll see. But no, we're just pleasant little suburban diesel or electric multiple units.
0: Okay. Looking at the, uh, the island as a whole, so I could probably, or could I, start in Scotland and go into Britain all the way down by train is it that expensive yep.
5: oh yeah um, and i would recommend this is a little thing if you're coming from abroad look at the brit rail presses because they give you unlimited first class rail travel on a daily basis across the whole of the uk and that excellent value and i had i have friends that come visit and they will go up to scotland they'll go to Edinburgh, further north even and um, one's coming over next November and is planning to go down to Plymouth just because he fancies going there on the train. So you can do all four corners of Britain by train. Wow.
0: Yeah, you can, you can do that here, not as much as, you know, 40 years ago, but I think just from my personal experience on Amtrak and then just seeing films and stuff of uh, what's over in Great Britain, You guys do it with a lot more polish and uh, flair.
5: Yeah, but you you don't get to check your suitcase, which you do sometimes on Amtrak, which is lovely.
0: Okay. Yeah, we are so oriented towards automobiles here. And then starting in the late 50s when they put in the interstate system, it just so much more cemented that mode of travel. uh...
5: I think rail travel here for commuting is on the rise, especially Mm -hmm. amongst the male 20-plus age group in in my city which I would commute into which is Birmingham and for me if I wanted to drive it would be three quarters of an hour to get in there I want to catch the train it's 20 minutes if that so it's definitely a lot quicker there's ample parking and almost everybody I know here will catch the train into central Birmingham they won't drive Ha! Huh. Uh,
0: we had a light rail transit system in Phoenix uh when we lived there and they were it always amazed me and i understand the the cost per mile the you know the infrastructure cost of it because it seemed to serve the desert valley but it didn't come into like north phoenix north scottsdale where you know just tens of thousands of people commute down into the valley to work every day and i thought golly it seems like it would make sense to do that so you know great britain's already done that i think that's So what is?
5: It was there a long time ago. You built your cities when the automotive was the most popular, transport in some ways. We built our cities before cars were invented. And so the rail infrastructure is already there. Our problem Mm -hmm. was we shut a lot of it. Beaching is very unpopular for axing all the small little branch lines back in the 60s. Yes. And that's the big problem. But if if all the commuter trains that I would catch, those have been there for hundreds of years. Well, not hundreds, but a very long time Um, and they're still going but we are putting new stuff in so you're seeing a move to having more trams in city centres rather than buses so Birmingham's put in a new tram route Uh, it did eventually open about two or three months late and it runs it connects one major city Wolverhampton used to come into one of the um, rail stations and now it comes across town because there's three or four rail stations in Birmingham which serve various lines because historically it was different rail companies that built them. And the tram is going to extend further up Broad Street, which I'll put my little plug in. I'm running a convention for the NMRA in 2022, and it is going to be in city center Birmingham within striking distance of all the great places that I live and some absolute brilliant railways. And I'm hoping the tram will be all the way up past the hotel and beyond by then. So it'll be easy for people to get around.
0: Okay, so you're using the word tram. Mm -hmm. That just means the train?
5: No, no, a tram is different to a train.
0: Oh, Um, how so?
5: Well, trams run down streets. Trains are always on a separate right of way. In the UK, you would not get a a train running anywhere where it can share with people. They are always fenced, they're always separate. You cannot go across the track except where, on some of the more rural ones, you may have a um, crossing. With all the speeds lifting to be 100 miles an hour plus on most of the main lines, they're actually building um, um, uh, bridges or under, generally bridges for footpaths now because it's safer. So you don't get people and trains mixing in the same way. We still have level crossings, um, but they are rare. Um, we have a lot less, we're a lot more cramped than you. So, uh, okay. you know, we just over the years, generally our rights of way have been fenced in for safety reasons. So because of that, a tram will run down a street where people might be walking, and that's the main difference. But there are also trams, um, it's it's got sunk rail industry track work is generally given. Some of them are overhead, some of them aren't. It just depends how they're being powered.
0: All right. New Orleans has what you would call a tram. They have streetcars that run yeah. down the, uh, the center. They call it neutral ground. I call it median. Uh, on boulevards. Okay, electric powered, most of them look like they're four or five decades old, but even the new stuff is made to look old, that fits the architecture here.
5: Cars are very cutting edge looking, you know, they look nice. Yeah. Um, A lot of big British cities have put trams in in the last 10, 20 years, it's it's a big move. It's a good way of getting people around the city centre without putting the pollution of buses.
0: Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Now, how long have you been into modeling?
5: Well, I did it as a teenager with my dad with his own Hornby 003 rail, which is very common over here. It was a big thing in the 50s. You can get okay. it. And I, I did it and then somehow the space was needed for homework and you move on to do different things. And then I went on holiday about 15, 16 years ago to a place that had a permanent railway exhibit I thought oh, i remember enjoying that so i got some um, magazines and i started to model the bit by my house because i lived next door to a railway line literally i was a, a terrace house away from it and i modeled that section for a bit in the uk outline down the side of my lounge and then i went to an exhibition that had american modeling and over here it's very very different perhaps the way we organize our model railroad clubs and so people are, sort of, themselves almost by what prototype they model so if i model american i'm in the nmra because i model american if i was to model spanish i'd be in the spanish iberian society you know if i model swedish railways i'd be in the scandinavian society and i may well go to a local club as well okay so, um you know i started model american because i like the differences you can have your trains running down your streets your scenery can be very different to britain And just the models ran very well, which at the time, I think the British market has caught up a lot. But at the time, there was a marked difference between American and and British model trains and Mm -hmm. how they ran. And I was lucky enough, I came in at the advent of DCC being really popular, so I was able to come in and just start on that. And I started modeling um, the New Haven. Okay. Now, the first, when you were
0: doing it with your father, and you mentioned that, What's, is that like our Lionel, our O
5: scale? No, it's Hornby 00, so it's 00, which is, you're used to 1 to 87, which is HO. It's 1 yes. to 76, it's 00, and it's the most, it's about the only scale of that size. There isn't really HO in the UK. Some people do do it, but it runs on the same gauge track. So you can run 00 and HO on the same track. Okay. It means that all the 00 models have slightly undersized wheel, well, sorry, oversized wheelbases. Um, so it, it just means they're not quite right. So you do get people who do EM gauge and P's proto scales and, and all these trying to get it to work with better scale track and they often have to hand lay it as a result. So it's slightly, we probably didn't have the standards that you did, which the NMRA did back in the day, but our standard was just set as not quite prototypical. Okay.
0: So are you still doing the New Haven?
5: I am still doing the New Haven. Um, I I did dabble in ON30 for a number of years before I realized that my modeling time was getting smaller and smaller, and I wasn't actually getting anything done on anything. So I gave up the ON30, and now I've got my HO layout in my loft, which Now that I'm running a convention locally, people keep saying to me, oh, I'll come and see that in six years' time. And I keep going, oh, well, maybe I better get on and do something then. So I'm having a resurgence of trying to get some work done on my layout, but life does get in the way.
0: So when you go shopping, because we never have enough locomotives or cars, we always need more, uh, do you have access, and, and this isn't a naive question, I just want a clarification, have access to like, Atlas, Athern, all the traditional U.S. suppliers?
5: Yeah, what you do is, there's there's a number of specialist North American outline suppliers, so they'll do U.S. and Canadian outline, and we would have those here. You can just order from the States and accept the horrendous shipping, and the fact that everything that you send to us will get a 20% customs charge when it comes through, so it'll automatically be more expensive than you're paying for it. Um, Or you can wait till you come visit the U.S. and buy some stuff when you're there. But with the way pre-orders are going... I mean, I've got pre-orders with Caboose Hobbies. I'm rather grateful they've been taking over and they're still doing their pre-orders. And um, I will order with a couple of people like them if I need something.
0: Okay. Yes, so when I lived in Phoenix at the hobby store I worked at, you know, part-time after I retired, we had a gentleman come in twice a year from Great Britain. He was a tour guide. He would bring people over too from... Uh, Great Britain, and he would always pack two empty suitcases or include two empty suitcases, and we would start getting orders from him. You know, Richard would start sending email orders in, <laughs> and, and we knew when he was coming, and we would have these big bundles of American prototype HO scale stuff waiting for him. And he says, "Okay, this fills up my." My two suitcases, I will see you next time. That's
5: <laughs> very common. My suitcase is always almost empty coming out and very full going back.
0: <laughs> okay, make it to me. I understand that logic. So are you doing both passenger and freight?
5: Yes. On your um, model? That's one thing with the New Haven is it was very much a passenger railroad. So.
0: Okay. You're back. You said the 30s?
5: Well, I'm a bit... I'm a bit indecisive. So I wanted to do steam and I wanted to do a roundhouse and turntable and all of that. Okay. So I've I've set it in the 30s, but I also like the 50s. So I've got this huge thing where Tony Custer would just say I'm modeling 1960 badly. So let's just leave it as I'm modeling 1960 badly and I make my era whatever I fancy.
0: So do you have some of the McGinnis uh, paint scheme?
5: I do. uh, I tend to stop around at 1960. I don't go later than that. Okay. So um, my favorite schemes are the sort of green and gold and the orange and green. Okay. From pre-McGuinness. Though I do appreciate his sort of um, graphics.
0: As a kid, it always reminded me of the... Paint schemes they put on American uh, warships in the Pacific during World War II, you know, because it confused uh, what they were, the size, the proportions and stuff. That's the way how we viewed McGinnis' locomotives. You know, was a kid, what did I know? So your modeling skills, like everybody's, they they evolve. I mean, you have a wide range of subjects. Peeling paint, uh, the muddy roads in, you know, cabin or I'm sorry, building interiors. I liked when you did the culverts and you did uh, a couple of those, and then you went back to static grass. And I liked how you overlaid the taller, often dormant grass over top of the vibrant undergrass. So I thought that was just really cool because I'd always, I thought, how do I get glue back there without screwing up what's Underneath it and you just brush it on.
5: Yeah Wow. Uh, there are sprays you can buy now, which I keep meaning to try to see if they're good I have done it with just normal spray glue and I will be honest It didn't stand up quite as well as I like so when you're at a distance it looks fine yes. When you take a close-up photo you can see the top layers are quite flat And um, what I'll often do is just mix a handful of um, the long grass in with the short grass so it comes <clears> out mixed already out of the applicator Okay, so doing both at once.
0: Now are you using, what, four millimetres, six and a half millimeter. half millimetres? You're varying your lengths?
5: I would never put just one in. I probably have, you know, five or six in at any one time. Okay. So I tend to do the shorter ones from knock, and then throw in handfuls of the longer ones. Um, but yeah, to my mind, nothing in nature is uniform, which is why I don't like the surface you're putting it onto to be flat, because otherwise you just end up with a flat tablecloth of green, it looks, right. it looks like a football pitch. Well, okay. I don't know if your football pitches look like ours. It looks like a soccer pitch for you. You know, it looks green and just flat and uniform. And to me, that's, that's not what the majority of us are modelling, unless you're doing a very nice suburban lawn. So I tend to try and make the underneath slightly bumpy so that the grass rises and falls. And I always put the mix in, the mix of colours, and just, the, just to get that variety, because nature is not uniform most of the time.
0: Okay, yeah, I put down after I do the whatever my ground structure is going to be, you know, dense foam, styrofoam, whatever, and the plaster cloth. I'll come over with it's just zip texturing.
4: Mm.
0: Uh, you know, it's been around for decades, and I use construction sand in there. Yeah. And if I, And if I want more irregularity in that surface, then I'll just mix in a higher percentage of sand. And if I need to, I'll go add add to it before I go in and uh, do the uh, static grass. What an amazing invention.
5: Yeah. Awesome. So much better than ground foam. My favorite texture project, which I just use too much, is probably tile grout. I put it everywhere. It's just great. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. and you and I share the same type of little uh, hand-battery-powered uh, vacuum cleaners to uh, <laughs> pick it up so you can recycle it.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I like Noke products mm. on that stuff. Yeah. So do you... My mind went blank. That's the great thing about audio editing. When your mind goes blank and there's a pregnant pause, you can go edit it out. <laughs> so besides the scenery and the stuff because i don't recall having seen them yet you have a series on uh weathering like on your uh, rolling stock and stuff
5: i haven't yet it is
0: okay
5: it's planned so i've got my schedule of stuff that i'm going to do over the next couple of years and i keep adding to it and (laughs) i'm finishing off the scale house i actually had a comment on youtube of how many more of this blooming scale house are there and um so you know, I'm finishing that off, so I've got lighting and then the final detailing and bedding it all in and, and that kind of thing to come. And then I've got a couple, this week will be the NMRA BR convention, I'm just editing the video for that, so that will be up. And then um, I think after that, I'm still just trying to decide, but someone asked me how to paint steel, silvery grey wood. So I think I might do a couple on silvery grey wood, sort of using wood and using um, um sort of styrene. So I'm going to do a few on that, and I need to start videoing those up um, this weekend and next weekend. So that'll be the next thing, and then we'll be at Christmas. So I'll decide what the new year is going to be. Okay. So at the
0: uh, NMRA Mm -hmm. last weekend, do you get American manufacturers make the trip over, or do they use their local distribution for a presence?
5: We've never even asked American manufacturers. I don't think they would. We will when it comes to a large national convention for the whole of the NRA, but for a regional convention, we have our local um, traders, as we call them, who will come along, and there's always a lot of bring and buy, and actually the most popular thing is people selling off their second hand that they don't want because you can get some really good bargains and interesting things you can't find elsewhere. Um, But, yeah, there's always a mix of new and old scenery and other things. Okay.
0: So you have clinics?
5: We do. We only run one stream because most people want to actually be attending the convention. They don't want to be listening to clinics. So we run one stream from morning to afternoon and it really ends Sunday morning as well. So it tends to be Saturday and Sunday morning at the main times the convention's really busy. OK. All
0: right. Yeah. Which this is where Chris can, can contribute because he had just come back from some shows. He's with Atherton. So he's. Your yeah. product manager, so he's always a good source of uh, information. Okay, now in your professional life, because this, I, I sense that, are you a graphic artist or anything like that? And no, this
5: is- no at all. I'm a um, accountant, so I, um, I do contract interim financial management work. So I go into places and run the departments for a bit while they're recruiting new people when they need work improving. So I've got this improvement and um, interim management bent going on there.
0: Well, I saw your, you know, you've got it on your YouTube channel, your uh, Facebook page, and in some of your scenes, you're wearing a sweatshirt that has your logo. Yeah. And I went, okay, Kathy Millett modeling. And I thought, I bet you she's a graphic designer.
5: No. I did AS level art at school, but um no i am um, i went for the money over the um, creativity so it's a hobby <laughs> okay yeah that's right
0: creativity doesn't pay the rent <laughs> very good oh. so you mentioned in one of our communications that you have to commute how far to this this contract you're on
5: currently um it's 45 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on the state of the motorways, because it wow. works on one section, which causes problems. And I happen to live on one of the most congested stretches of motorway in the country. Not the most, but one of. Um, but I, I, I'm finding my shortcuts round. And to be honest, i um, it's a lot shorter than it was. My last one was an hour and a half, and I had two trains over to the other side of Birmingham. So it comes and goes as to whether I'm driving or catching the train. And I'd rather do the train, because I, I meet people because I'm on the same trains as I've been on for years. And it's quite a social event. I used to meet a lot of my staff on the last one, and um, I can do stuff. So I can play Criminal Case on my iPad or something. If I'm...
0: oh, do they have uh, Wi-Fi on the
5: trains? No, but we have. I have a cellular, as you'd call it. I have 4G on all my phone. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm always in touch. And you know, there's a huge. Um, there's always a lot of debate about technical and the future of the hobby and how technological you have to be and. I always sit there and go, guys, if I can't do it on my iPhone, then I don't do it because I live on my iPhone. You know, I wander around with it all day at work. I take it to the toilet with me because I'm, you know, wherever I am, my iPhone's with me and I've just got an Apple Watch. So now I can look at it on my watch as well. And realistically, it's, um, you know, just one of those things. But I've got friends my age who never look at theirs, So it's just about how techie you are.
0: That's that's amazing. Uh, You're not one of those people they show on the, the videos walking down the street, texting and <laughs> walk into mud puddles or walk in front of a car, are you?
5: I haven't done the mud puddles or walking into the car yet, but I have walked into people at work while I've been on the phone. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Well, as long as no one was seriously injured,
5: it's okay.
0: Uh, now, so you, your model railroad is up in the loft.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. <laughs> what are you defining as a loft?
5: Um, in the UK, I, it's a loft. I guess you might call it an attic. So we okay. have two main floors. We never have basements really in the UK. And if we do, they are just like damp cellars. Okay. They're not. Um, they're not there ever. So two-story houses are the norm if you're talking about a house. And then the space above between the bedroom floor and the tiles is the loft. So they normally have a hatch. You can go up there and you can, you know, board it, but, you know, some people will convert them to proper rooms with, you know, proper staircases and windows, and, you know, that's what you're supposed to do with your loft if you want to use it for anything.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. Same thing here. This house has, in essence, three stories, but the top one is you get through a disappearing stairwell, and even though there's a... It's all stand-up, walk-around room up there. That's unfortunately for me. That's where all the hot water systems, the heating and the air conditioning is. So all this potential modeling space is cluttered up with necessities for the house.
5: Yeah, your your boilers and furnaces seem humongous compared to ours. I've got a little, um, little boiler on the wall in my garage. And it's, I don't know, two, three foot high by a foot wide. And that's it. That's my heating. And we don't have air conditioning. So really
0: just don't have that clutter oh there's just this house has two hot water systems two heating systems two air conditioning systems because it because of all the volume all these rooms are like 12 foot ceilings
4: (laughs) it's just
0: the Um. cubes, the cubic feet of air that has to be cooled or heated it's just enormous so they just put two systems in
5: now i think my, my mine and the standard sort of eight foot ceilings you have to go back a lot older to get to taller ceilings and mine from 1959 the house it's not that old
0: well this house was built you know the original home here was destroyed by the flood uh, from from hurricane katrina and but it was rebuilt as most of the houses on this boulevard are Were built in the early 1900 architectural style. Wow. With the tall ceilings, the massive crown moldings, and baseboards, and tall doors, and all that stuff. It's okay, it's neat. I just. Had I built the house, I would have said, "Okay, I want the third store, you know, the third floor to have a regular walk walk up stairway and find another place to put these physical systems." I'm building a railroad, so I've uh, laid claim to one of the bedrooms because our kids are kids are grown and married and off, and so when we first started talking, what you saw behind me was I've been casting rocks all week and then painting them and then doing the uh india ink wash and trimming and cutting because i don't want that mess in the house so i do that out in the garage and bring them up and i'm starting to build my foam understructure for the cliff that's going to be there but you know i've lamented that always before i've had big areas to model so running up
5: i don't think this big thing is would work for me and um, I do notice the big difference between the U.S. and the U.K. when it comes to modeling is size. Yeah. Like everything in America is bigger. Yes. I mean, you're hundreds of times bigger than the U.K. in size. You know, so as a continent, you've got a lot more space. But your cars are bigger. Your um, portions are bigger. Your houses are bigger. Everything is bigger. So in the U.K., most people might have a 12 by 8 foot spare bedroom for their lo- for their railway space. And that's considered big. My loft is a big layout at 12 by 12. Um, oh. Most people just don't have large layouts. So if you go to a lot of our exhibitions, our railway exhibitions, and there's, there's tens on every weekend around the country, so there's an awful lot of exhibitions, and people will have model you know, layouts. They just take to exhibitions. And it's not like modular, which really you don't see much in the UK outline. You see it in the MRA over here. And I think it is certainly a really good way into the hobby if you're starting or if you're wanting to do a limited amount in time and and space. Yes. Excellent for that. But most people in the UK, they might do a four foot by two foot layout. And the entire layout is that big. And maybe the scenic area is that big. And then they have wings where they put the fiddle yards. And just the idea of having to do a 60 foot basement horrifies me. (laughs) How do you afford it? I mean, just look at the price that you have on um, turnouts. And my, my track all Pico Code 83, and it's all, um, you know, their, their turnouts. And I look at the price of it and just think, I couldn't afford to do something twice the size. It's just, and just all that space. How do you do a good level of detail on it that people do? I just like, I don't have the time to do that. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad I don't have a 60-foot basement. <laughs>
0: well, this room here is only 13 by 14. So it means that I will be selling a lot of my equipment. I can no longer run 50 car trains, but it, uh, yeah, Chris and I have talked about this. I may change my time period back to transition when we Mm. had steam, 40 foot cars, 50 foot cars and just GP9s and SWs and not SD70 max, you know, I may be selling a bunch of stuff.
5: I've got to say I've got multiple layout um, levels to try and get more space into mine, which has its own issues. I mean, you've got 12 foot ceilings, you could get quite a lot of vertical space in if you can get up there. Um, But it's, um, I think we're all by nature quite acquisitive. We all buy too much stock. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. So the advantage of a small layout to me is you can finish it. It isn't too daunting. You can do it and then you can be bored and you can go away and buy something new so you can do a new layout with completely new stock and go out and buy loads more because that's the fun bit and you know planning it is great and but you can actually achieve it because it's the size that is possible rather than daunting
0: well i've changed my philosophy on on this this railroad here is is adding a lot more detail. Joey uh, Ricard, we've interviewed him and he's tracked at scenery.com. and one of the things that I noticed his, on his narrow gauge, his ON30, it was just incredible detail.
4: Mm. All
0: the minutiae. You know, yeah. the, the guy, the country store porch just had milk mm. crates, it had brooms, it had all this stuff just like a real scene and I went, that looks real and it's because of all these little attention to detail so that's yeah. become my new driver here is not so much lots of track but well detailed in-depth track scenery cars and stuff so yeah you know, it's all so enjoyable
5: I like detail I like the pattern you get when you put more and more detail in but I like it to sort of stay realistic so I'm yes. in time Um, Person than um, a George Seelyos when it comes to levels of detail, and obviously everybody has their own level that they like. So I like loads of open space, so that when you have detail, you know, loads of scenic pauses, so the detail just doesn't run into itself all the time.
0: Yes. Well, like I said, after watching you this morning, I'm putting that second layer of grass there. I'm going back over a couple of areas that I've already you know, static grass and try and get that second layer of taller glass. Even if I've got to rip out some and redo it.
5: Well, the other thing to think is don't just use grass. Try putting a bit of ground foam on for a little bit of texture or um, a coloured ground foam for flowers, depending where you're modelling and when. Um, I've got a friend who has a exquisite layout, really, really nice and not very large. It's probably only six foot long. But the attention there, he's got nettles and all... Everything is just exquisite, and because he hasn't done a huge volume, he's put the detail in, and he's got layer upon layer on his grass. Really, so it isn't just I've done one pass of grass.
0: Yes. Yeah, I've done Oh, uh, Scenic Express super trees. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the the real bushes that they're they're based on, but
5: like the sea foam ones, the sea moss. Okay. That's what we call them over here.
0: See, oh, okay. And so mm-hmm. the, uh, it produces a very nice tree structure. And when you trim off the extraneous little branches, little limbs and stuff, they make incredible bushes. You know, you were showing on some of the trees that you upgrade how you get little itty-bitty bushes that can go around rocks and stuff. Yeah, so all the scrap becomes... Trees and bushes, you know, with uh, either oh, yeah. super leaf on it or real fine ground foam, so yeah. hides all kinds of nooks and crannies around rocks, so that you get just a flow. You don't see crevices and stuff. You, like, on your culverts, you went back in and painted, so that there was no white or anything there. Yeah. So that yeah. the scene flows. What you see, the aesthetics. Uh, that's what I've been using these bushes for too. Just soften the areas and stuff. It, yeah, it's time-consuming, but it's visually very, very effective.
5: I think it's worth its weight, and I think every person has their own choice about what interests them in the hobby, and that's what I love about model railroading as a hobby. You can get people who do people who do plywoodics and love operations, and they're just as valid as people who like doing detail. And that, to me, is amazing, because everybody has a niche or finds something that they like within it.
0: Well, and I noticed in... On one of your videos, you were showing how you had done the the grass and so forth. And then the background was one of your rail lines. And you had a clump of what would be in real life weed or, you know, goose grass or something growing up next to a rail between the rails. Mm. And Silphor makes those. But I've added some of those to the rail because on a siding, railroads don't always invest in weed killer and so there you in
5: 30 was very very grassy you know you, you could hardly even see the rails it just it all grassed <laughs> in. Um, because that's what it's like in real life um i think we we have this um uh, sort of we see the railways as they are today which there's a lot more weed killer around than there was back in the day
0: yes it's just the hobby you've been in the hobby how long
5: um, if you start when I came back, probably about 15, 16 years.
0: Okay, yeah. And most of us are in and out of the hobby. I got started in the early 70s, but there have been periods due to career and stuff where there was inactivity. But I still have the first locomotives I ever bought. And by comparison to what you can buy today, I mean, they're very crude. And the electronics, the motors, all that stuff. But it's still, the basics of scenery. Well, no, I take it back. That has progressed trees. Yeah, it's all progressed.
5: Static grass has made such a difference.
0: Yes. And here in New Orleans used to be a, a nationally known O scale. It was called the Delta Lines, And it was, the guy started it in the 40s and stuff. And it was outside Third Rail. Wow. And I'm going, I am so Anal retentive on detail. I, I would have had a problem accepting a, mod, uh, a model running on out third rail, but yet the New, the new Haven and other people had mm-hmm. third rail power pickup. Thankfully, not uh,
5: in my section, but yes,
0: they did. Okay. Well, the FL nines, uh, which had diesel prime movers, but they also had a, a power pickup for electric off a third, you know, Mostly an outside rail.
5: Yeah, as you go into New York, they were having problems with all the smoke in the tunnels. Sure. So, I mean, the New Haven had an awful lot of overhead catenary. Yes. Um, I have not really modeled electric, even though I have a couple of New Haven electrics. Rapido are just bringing out the jets, so it may be I do a little electrified section, just, you know, a bit of an homage, but um, generally I've stayed to diesel because it's easier to do. It's like you knock everything over.
0: (laughs) Now, are you DCC?
5: Yes, very much so. Um, I'm a believer in clean fascias. So if you look at my layout, it has black above and black below framing it like a theatre. Okay. It's very brightly lit, and so your eyes drawn into it. And it crops quite heavily. So some buildings disappear above it. It is a very sort of, um, this is the view. And so because of that, I don't even have any switches on my facial fronts. I have nothing on my facial fronts. Um, At some point, I am going to have to put a way of attaching my, um, uh, you know, controllers in because we don't do the radio ones that you have. Oh, you don't? Okay. Well, your NCE ones are on an illegal frequency here, so you can't just use them because you'd be in trouble with emergency services. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't done that one. But, I mean, I could easily just eventually go to my phone to run it because that would be just as easy. Okay. So, at the moment, I'm – very much clean, everything's thrown from my handset, DCC, so all uh-huh. turnouts as you'd call them, um, everything just runs off that.
0: Okay, but also your locomotives?
5: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, whose uh, decoder system do you use, or do you have a mix?
5: I have a real mix. An awful lot of the most recent ones I've bought, I've bought with sounds. So they come with whatever's in there. So I'd say okay. almost the bulk of them I bought with sound, so They they've got whatever. Okay. I've got a list of ones that I will try, but at the moment I'm going to confess all of my stock is off because I was doing scenery, and I was a little worried because I was slapping around on the upper level about getting gunk onto my um, trains, so and knocking them over. So I took them all off. Um, while I was slapping huge amounts of gunk around. And so now I need to clean the track, clean them, the ones that did get covered in stuff anyway, and put them back on. Um, but that's uh, probably a chore that I keep putting off because I'm still doing scenery and I'm worried about getting them gunked.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have that much track and it's amazing just dirt in the room getting on there and uh, tsunami, older tsunamis I have. <laughs> if the headlights on and they stumble, you got to turn the headlight back on. It's not like ESU.
5: Um, I am thinking of putting capacitors on them, but I just haven't got that far down. Everything runs um, as it comes out the box, and I tweak them, but I haven't got to the adding extra bits in. I mean, I did at the beginning fit an awful lot of decoders, and they would be whatever I managed to get. So um, back in the day, you know, ten, fifteen years ago, there were was a choice that you had now.
0: Oh, there's yeah, there's uh, that's another thing that just evolved from even 10 years ago because now you've got the Tsunami 2s with excellent motor control ESUs, Select Series Once I got into DCC I went, it's all going to be DCC and it's all going to be sound So
5: I've probably got about a handful maybe slightly more locos I still need to chip Um, so they just all sit, bless them, in their boxes looking for lawn and at some point in my life I will get around to them
0: I'd show guys how to do it when to store we would do uh, workshops and I'd show them how to do this. I find it so relaxing.
5: <laughs> I do find getting the shell off relaxing sometimes. Um, but I did a whole batch of RDCs and I never put sound in them. I just put in quite basic decoders and you have to cut the traces and all that at X and, and all that kind of stuff on the old lifelike ones. And if you wait long enough, someone will bring out a sound one like the RDCs that Rapido's bringing out. So if you wait long enough, someone will do the fitting for you and release a better model, is my experience.
0: Yeah, it's, I just enjoy doing it. It relaxes me. That Getting rid of the incandescent bulbs and putting in LEDs, uh, I find it enjoyable. So it keeps me off the streets. My wife knows where I will be. I will be up here in the train room. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know I made a note I was going to ask you. Uh, when we were communicating a week or two ago and I said something about don't tell me that you serve such and such a beer warm because you know here everything is chilled
5: oh you ice things to death wow yes ice in everything
0: yes and I don't think anybody puts ice in
5: beer but oh, that's not beer um, I think we have you have to bear in mind we have a very different beer culture perhaps to you um, pubs and it's changed a lot recently was the where men went when they wanted to get away from the families they went to the pub yes. and they drank real beer but they would drink bitter they wouldn't drink this pale blonde lager like stuff that is very popular now and I, I was chatting to a, um, a partner Sarah of one of our bottlers at the NMRA convention she's actually the executive for camera The campaign for real ale in Scotland and it was fascinating to see but talking to people about why real ale which is really has been bitter in the past has become more popular they've started to include a lot more blonde beers Um, so the color appeals to the younger generations who like lager and that paler color so I grew up on um, you either had lager which was fizzy or you had bitter which was warm and had a foamy head
0: okay all right i've had guinness which is a stout right
5: yeah it is a stout it's um very very different
0: okay and oh what is the other one i like i don't like alcohol but i will have a beer oh harp that's what they make the black and tans out of where you combine the two beers and they have a different uh Thickness, so they actually layer.
5: Oh wow! Um, and
0: you do it in a wide-mouth glass, so as you sip it, you get both flavors with each sip.
5: Yeah. See, I think our pint glasses are wider than yours, anyway. So you're probably doing it in a normal pint glass, aren't you? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's uh, there's certain restaurants I go to. If I'm going to have a uh, a beer, then I'll do something like that.
5: Now. I had to laugh. Like, I went somewhere in the States that had a um, Newkey brown ale as if it was something really impressive. And I was like, oh, in my student days, that was the rough one you drank. <laughs> Things go around and come around.
0: Yeah. Well, when you come to the States, microbrews and craft beers are just all the rage right now. There must be 20 microbrewers just in southern Louisiana, judging by what I see on the. Uh, you know, grocery store shelves. Now, you mentioned, you know, because I think of, uh, you know, meat pies, I think of fish and chips, mm-hmm. you know, so that just shows how to touch I am. And you mentioned that curry is very popular in Great Britain now.
5: I would say curry is the national dish of the UK. No if I, Well, if I look down Knoll High Street and where I live is a little village. Um, well, it's not a little village. It's a big village. And it's suburban. And there are three pubs which do food. There are one Thai, two Chinese takeouts. Um, I'm going to get to the, you know, there's one fish and chip shops and there's five curry houses. So, you know, curry is by far the most popular. If you go out for an evening meal, and you know, curry is, is up there. If you've been out drinking, curry is what you do on your way back if you're not doing kebab. Um, no. So it's definitely... Um, there, and I love my curry, chicken korma, pishwari naan, pilai rice, standard order.
0: Wow, gee, Christmas, such an eye opener.
5: <laughs> really? Because you've got to bear in mind, we had um, we had an empire once, I have to laugh, we did have an empire once, and one of our major big con- subcontinents that we had was India. And I love that, but. That, we had so much interchange, the, and loads of Indians, came across in the 60s and brought their amazing food with them. So, excellent. Um, samosas, you know, at work, if sometimes instead of bringing cakes in, people bring samosas in for their birthday.
0: Wow. Great. Amazing. So much to learn about the world.
5: Well, if you come to the convention in the UK, we will definitely do a curry night for people in one of the Smart book, which is sort of, it's almost like Little Asia when you go down it. It's just, you know, very much... Um, sari shops and um, curry houses and things like that. So it'll be really interesting for people. They'll get a really good flavor of it there.
0: Okay. Kind of like Cajun cooking, Creole cooking here in Southern Louisiana.
5: Mm. Um, Slightly different taste, but yeah.
0: um, Oh yeah, yeah. Totally different taste, but uh, talking about regional, very specific, different from the main. I've just learned that, you always ask how spicy it is before you take that first big mouthful.
5: <laughs> well, if you're worried about your curries, go for a korma. That's the mild. It's just very creamy, um, very nice. Ishwari naan is laden with um, honey, almonds, and sultanas. So there's a bit of a sweet feel going on. So it's not the most... If you're on a diet, it's not the best dish you could Okay.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not worried about the calories. It's just I think I abused my digestive system in my youth with a lot of real spicy foods cayennes and the different uh and now my body is gone hey lighten up
5: (laughs) yeah yeah most curries aren't that strong um okay they're not Um, but you can get them stronger and they'll always say the heat on them so just go for mild and i don't think they're at all spicy
0: (laughs) okay well that's amazing is there anything else you want to talk about kathy about what you're doing, project or anything like that?
5: No, I mean, the, the two big things in my life at the moment are um, doing videos, and they do take a long time. We were talking about doing one a week. Um, you know, most of my weekend ends up doing videos. So I am going to move on to doing ones of my layout in the hope of progressing my layout a little bit more. So you will see a slight change in emphasis to things and tasks that are on my layout.
0: Okay, uh, now, do you... I was noticing this this morning as I was because I was watching uh, while you were working. And of course I can see both your hands working. I see the camera uh, zooming in, repositioning. So you have a cameraman up?
5: No, nope, I'm on my own.
0: Really, how are you controlling the zoom? Wirelessly, yeah. Bluetooth?
5: No, nope, you have to get a 4K camera and then you can zoom the heck out of it because you've got so many spare pixels. Okay. So 4K is about 3,800 wide. And your standard YouTube high-definition video is only 1920. So you yeah. can zoom in half the size and actually beyond before you start losing it if things are moving. So I just have a 4K Panasonic Lumix G80, GX80, GX85, I think it was in the U.S. They named it something different for a reason on, on the close-up. So it's got a wider view so I can zoom in. But I was finding if I zoomed in too much, I was picking things out of camera range. And then I've just okay. got my iPhone and iPad on the other session. So the main view you see of me when I'm talking is my iPhone. And I've got okay. the iPad from the side in case I've done something stupid with the other camera. And every now and then you'll think, gosh, that's a really odd shot. Why didn't you do it a different way? And it's probably because one of the cameras didn't record properly. So having three sort of mitigates against not having anything when you've just pulled a whole layer of Envirotex, at least you've got something somewhere you can show. Well, yeah, I've
0: noticed on one of the 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 videos your your clothing changed three times in the first like twenty seconds.
5: Yeah. (laughs) That's because I'll come back and do the tops and tails at the end sometimes. (laughs) Um, and my hair goes up and down like anything. Yes, yes. Okay,
0: hair down, hair up, hair down, hair up, sweatshirt off.
5: Well, I probably should wear my sweatshirt. I've got my sweatshirts and I probably should wear my logoed ones. But, um, yeah, I just, I tend to wear whatever I'm wearing.
0: Yeah. Oh, I just, when you, the one of them, I thought, oh, she's doing work with glue and stuff. She doesn't want to ruin a good looking uh, logoed sweatshirt there. So.
5: Oh, I have got all sorts of paint and glue all over my really nice clothes. So I just <laughs> modeling whatever now. The worst thing is, and um. Whilst I have my hair down, I have it mostly down in the week. If I'm modelling, your hair being down can wipe out an entire model if you're not careful. So,
0: um, oh yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. I've I had was,
0: uh, moments. I was walking up. I had uh, three containers of freshly painted uh, hydrocal stone faces yesterday. Walking up the uh, the stairs, and so I got a puppy at my feet balancing three of these things in one hand and a full cup of coffee in the other. And I get about three fourths of the way up and the dog cuts in front of me. So I almost lose my balance. I was able to put one foot back and shove myself against the banister to stabilize. And I thought, Wow, there was all <laughs> that would have taken me most of the day to clean up. Plus, I would have destroyed, you know, yeah, all these rocks yeah. and stuff. So, didn't spill a drop of coffee though, and nothing was damaged. So, it was a good day.
5: Next week's video, well, not next week's, the week after, probably now, is lighting. And I glued it on with white glue, which with hindsight probably wasn't the best glue. I should have used something like a acrylic and scraped it a bit. But it stuck yeah. all right until my hair came on, caught with the wires, and yanked the entire lot off. And I was like, okay. I'll just fudge over that in the video and point out that you probably should have used silent acrylic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Put it at the end when you have the, uh, the mini cat. Oh yeah. Yeah.
5: They're going to have to start exploring the layout. I think now, because they've they've been downstairs quite a bit and they're itching to get upstairs and play around
0: on that. On YouTube, any number of people who document the building of their, of their railroad with what you're doing, like weekly updates and stuff, which I think is, it's good because it, it broadens our perspective of how people are doing like tasks. Yeah. And sometimes you go, wow, what a time saver. I need to do that.
5: Yeah. The only thing I would say is um, I spend a lot of time editing video because I do a very polished beginning to end video. Yes. And it can take as long to edit the video, if not longer, than it can to actually do the modeling. And if you've got modeling that has 10 layers that have to dry, it can take weeks to do one video. So, um, you know, I think it, it's always a balance between how much time you put in and whether you actually get any modeling done. Excellent point.
0: Uh, one of our guests a month or so ago was using a different uh, weathering system that's more prevalent in military models.
5: Yeah, I tend to do military two ones.
0: And he was talking about, well, when you put this layer on, you'll come back to it two days later because it has to, to dry. And so, yeah, exactly what you're saying. When you wait for the interim time, it's kind of like letting dough rise. <laughs> There's nothing else you can yeah. do till it's finished. No.
5: And, um, yeah, actually, it's, um, you talk about watching dough rise. Do you watch The Great British Bake Off?
0: I'm sorry, say what?
5: Do you watch The Great British Bake Off? Um, one of the most popular programs in the UK is the Great British Bake Off, where they make cakes. Yes. And um, there are many a fraught picture of them sort of kneeling in front of their ovens, looking on helplessly, trying to make them rise.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, I love, uh, I, I do all of our cooking. In fact, this coming week, I'm going to a uh, cooking school down in the French Quarter. It was wow. one of my birthday presents. And uh, then I see on the internet last night, Alton Brown is bringing back uh, his original TV show, Uh, Good Eats, I think is what it's called. I just love watching that stuff, because I love to cook, and I like to watch people who do it well, do it.
5: Um, I do think that's one of the things I like about YouTube. You, You say you like watching people. I think, to me, over the years that I've been modeling, when I first started modeling, I've read a lot of magazines and I looked at a lot of books. And now, if I want to know how to do something, I'll go and look on YouTube. Yes. That's a huge shift in 10 to 15 years. And I wouldn't, I would always look on YouTube first now for almost everything.
0: Oh, I agree. I think it's just, uh, it's the new norm.
5: Hmm. The new norm. It is. And it's so much easier to um, learn physical things like hobbies through watching somebody do something than it is trying to read on a page and I taught myself Photoshop last summer from a a free YouTube video called Flurn and I thought he was brilliant, he was very engaging and I loved it and I I learnt Photoshop entirely from beginning to end. Now when I see photographic magazines and they try and explain how to do Photoshop, I get lost on about the first paragraph. Yes. Watching somebody do it and they say when oh, it's in this bit here and they go and you physically see which bit they've actually hit because there's so many bits to all of these programs now. It's just, it's mind-blowingly different.
0: Well, I think it's indicative of all of us modelers are, which is very tactile, it's hands-on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're probably right brain people who will learn more quickly from a video than we would a textbook. Absolutely. Your point is well taken. I've enjoyed this time, Kathy. I appreciate you taking your uh, your Saturday Thank to you have this chat. It
5: has been brilliant. It's been really good, Paul. And um, I'll drop you a line when we get nearer the time about coming to New Orleans. I'm coming with a New Zealander who I know very well, Paul Hobbs. And um, we're doing a road trip because we, I've got thirty states from the U.S. and I'm trying to get to all fifty. So I think we're going to put another four or five on this summer. Just a little road trip to add a few more.
0: Oh, by all means, let me know. Like I say, my wife and I will host you at a couple of uh, local eateries.
5: Oh, I can almost taste it now.
0: Okay, kiddo. All right. Thanks,
5: Paul. Thank you, Kathy. It's easy.